Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Sherry Beck, and welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with United States Marine Corps retired Captain Ben Redmond. Ben, welcome to Behind the Warrior. Well, thank you very much, Sherry. All right. Well, let, let's start out with you telling us where you grew up. Uh, I grew up in a very small town uh, of Biltmore, North Carolina. It's in Buncombe County, and it's just uh, just south of Asheville. In fact, Asheville has grown and that has actually encompassed uh, Biltmore and the Biltmore Estate, which is uh, where I was raised. Very nice. Well, I'm a huge fan of Asheville, and just recently my husband and I got to visit the Biltmore. Actually, it was this time last year, and uh, what a what an incredible place. <laughs> well, it it is, and of course there's some history on my side of the family. My mm-hmm. uh, grandfather uh, was one of the early employees hired uh, by George Vanderbilt. He... Uh, he was initially hired as a young teenager to help build the Bookmore House, along with thousands of others uh, that, that worked on this construction. But he apparently worked so hard and made such a good impression that when the house was built and George Vanderbilt moved in in 1895, he was offered a job uh, as the director of sales for Bookmore Dairy Farms, which was to be a new dairy established on the Bookmore State, and he held that job for 54 years, and my father worked there 56 years, and then uh, I worked there a couple of summers and decided I should find another life. <laughs> wow, that's very deep, rich history right there. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So the dairy farm business was your family's um business then yes my mother's side of the family they were merchants and uh, her father owned a car dealership her grandfather had made a lot of money in the 1800s and uh, so she grew up kind of on a wealthy side and my father grew up farming <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. up every morning and uh, off to work but uh, you know, I grew up in a country atmosphere with cousins and uh, lots of hard work, uh, but lots of fun. I, I mean, we learned to hunt and fish at an early age and uh, ride the rapids of the French Broad. I can remember on Saturday, my father would take me and some of the others my age, starting from about the age of eight, up the French Broad about 15 miles and... Uh, let us off on the side of the road with inner tubes and tell us to drift down to the ferry on the Bookmore Estate. And that's where we were supposed to get out and then walk up to a farmhouse and call him and he'd come pick us up. So we would do that several times. Uh, 
it was always a lot of fun. It, it, it wasn't until I came back from Vietnam and picked up the newspaper that I learned uh, there was a new uh, business in the area that uh, was called whitewater rafting. And uh, it was very dangerous that if people wanted to go, they should uh, seek a guide's help and wear a helmet and a life jacket. And all I could think of was, my goodness, I've been coming down that thing since about the age of nine years old uh, in an inner tube with no life jacket, no helmet, nothing. So. Man. <laughs> Those were the days, right? <laughs> wow. Um, in an inner tube. Wow. In a minute. Yeah. Wow, how cool. So, if you've been on the Biltmore Estate, the uh, uh, area of the French Broad that we got out at is where the winery is now. There used to be a ferry that took you across the river to the other side of the farm, back and forth. So, Oh, yeah. I know exactly where that is. We We did visit the winery there and have a little tasting, and I think we even bought a couple of bottles of wine. So, yes, I am familiar with that location. Very cool. It looks a lot different now, right? <laughs> oh, it does. <laughs> it does indeed. Yeah. Uh, um, well, Ben, when we were on our uh, pre-call together, um, we had a, a great conversation, and I always like to ask, you know, um, some history and what you were interested in when you were a kid. And um, you mentioned a little tidbit about having an interest in, in cars and also NASCAR. So can you share with our audience your, your story about that? Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, in elementary school, I was an A-plus student, uh, just just clean house. When I got to high school, uh, what I discovered was the opposite sex and, and the love of cars. And of course, my grades went lower and lower, but I learned to drive and enjoy driving the mountain roads. There was no four lane highways or, or uh, interstate roads back then. Uh, and I like to drive fast on those mountain roads. And so when I turned 16, I asked my parents, uh, or I, actually I told my parents that I wanted to uh, start racing at the uh, local track there, which was the new Asheville Speedway. And it was uh, just over a third of a mile track, a round track. And, of course, my mother was totally against it. My uh Father, after a little bit of contemplation, uh, said that I could do it. And he thought it would be a way to give me some direction and discipline in my life. So he helped me build my uh, first r race car. Mm. And I had visions of being a NASCAR great. And I would often see some of the ones that did go on to become greats in NASCAR, like Jack Ingram, Bosco Lowe. Uh, Morgan Shepard, Harry Gant, uh, and, and a bunch of others that did not become greats. But my dream was shattered when I received a letter from uh, uh, the Honorable Richard Nixon congratulating me on my selective service rating of 1A and inviting me into the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. I knew at that point 
I was but days away from being inducted into the Army as a draftee, and I would end up in Vietnam. There was no lottery draft at that time. It was just a regular draft system, and it gave deferments to those who were married, had children, or were in college, or medically unfit. And I was none of those. I was a strong, hay-pitching, race-car-driving teenager <laughs> who thought I knew everything there was to know about the world. <laughs> so, so I went down and enlisted in the Marine Corps. <laughs> okay. Lesson. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I want to, I have two questions for you. So in reference to NASCAR, so what was your first car? What was the car that you built with your father? Uh, a 1952 Hudson. <laughs> mm. <laughs> a lot of people don't even know what a Hudson is. Yeah. I have uh, I have a vision of what it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, but okay. So, in reference to safety at that time, then did you wear a helmet and all that sort of thing when you were racing the car yeah. too? Yeah. Okay. But you had lap belt, not the uh, five point harness that they have today. Uh huh. It was strictly a, a belt around your waist, and uh, and you had the helmet. Of course, the inside of the cars were stripped out. Mm -hmm. They had roll bars in them, and uh, uh, that was the only safety that they had. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Didn't have any safety barriers on the walls. It was solid concrete. Wow. But the cars were built pretty sturdy back then. Mm-hmm. So you could actually hit a wall, bounce off, and not have destroyed your car. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm sure, well, I don't know. I'm making an assumption that you probably weren't able to get up to 180 miles an hour in, in the car. No, well, it was a small track. We'd race at Iceville on Friday night, top speeds about uh, 70, 80 miles an hour. And then at Hickory on Saturday night, and there you could get to about 105 because mm -hmm. half mile track was just better laid out. But uh, first race, first turn, <laughs> I got hit and I did a complete rollover, came back up on the wheels, and the car started back up, and I was in the race. Oh still. my gosh. <laughs> that must have been a thrill. Um, and scary too, but wow, that's really, really cool. Um, and so the, the other one that I wanted to ask you was, who's your favorite driver now? You know, I've watched him come and go over the years, mm -hmm. you know, of the current drivers, I think Cal Larson would probably be the most skilled mm -hmm. and so I would pick him, but okay. I'm certainly a bunch of them over the years that were just as good as him. And they seem to have their periods. And by the time they hit about 40, they, uh, they just don't have the reflexes or, or the same strength that they once had when they were younger. Mm -hmm. It is definitely a young man's game. And, uh, you see a lot of these kids, uh, 18, 19 and 20 that are winning races. And you know that uh, they must have super reflexes as well as really good training. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, my husband and I are both NASCAR fans. So um, I, I think it's it's exciting to go to a race 
and uh, hear those engines start up and just watch it. It's it's really quite a thrill to watch. And uh, my favorite is Denny Hamlin, and I know he's um, he's a Virginia boy, so I like I like him. <laughs> well, he is, and he uh, he started on the short tracks. He's had a lot of success. He's mm-hmm. I'm close to winning a national title, but the fight hasn't gotten there. Right. I, mean, I, I still enjoy watching the races on the weekend, mm-hmm. and I'm particularly proud of the respect the sport shows for our flag and our veterans. I would agree with you. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, yeah, that never wavers, Ben, and I, and I like that. All right. Well, what an exciting uh, childhood and teenage life you had there. And then, as you said, the Honorable Richard Nixon sent you a draft letter. So from there, I guess, you know, it really wasn't a choice of whether you were going to join the military or not. It was, it was, this is, this is the next step. (laughs) So, Share share about that experience and and you being drafted into the army, but making maybe a well, you made a different choice. Well, I knew I was going into the military. Of course, in 1968, you knew you were going to Vietnam. Uh, the tent of '68 uh, was just starting to wind down. The U.S. had uh, had stopped the North Vietnamese, but they'd taken a lot of casualties in doing it. So. They needed people, and they needed them quickly. So uh, besides the issue of I don't like being told what to do and (laughs) go down and list in the Marine Corps instead of go to the Army, I took that rebellious state of mind and uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps under the Buddy program. This was a program that existed back then that allowed friends to join as a group and so there was three of us that all enlisted we all thought we would be drafted uh, before long and uh, so uh, you know the uh, recruiter especially back then uh, they would tell you anything to get you in the service and they had quotas to make. So I was promised I could have a career in electronics. So I thought, well, that's an up and coming business. And that's really what I ought to shoot for. And that way, when I get out of the Marine Corps in a couple of years, uh, if, if I go back to racing, I at least have the electronics to fall back on. So uh, with that rebellious state of mind, I decided I would. Uh, it, enlist on the buddy program and we'd be stationed together. Uh, The buddy program only guarantees you be stationed together for your first tour of duty, which happens to be boot camp. (laughs) (laughs) As any Marine will tell you, you don't really get to socialize a lot in boot camp. And so while they might've been in the same unit, they weren't necessarily in the same platoon I was going through boot camp. And they kind of line you up in the squad base alphabetically. So uh, none of them were close to where my bunk was. And you didn't dare go to the other end of the squad bay and just start a casual conversation. So uh, that turned out to be the the only 
buddy thing we saw. We saw each other at graduation, and that was about it. So, <laughs> as for my career in electronics, you know, uh, when you get near the end of boot camp, the drill instructor comes in the squad bay and he calls your name, and you go up and they tell you what your MOS is going to be, and. Uh, for, for me, he told me 0311, which was infantry, and I asked permission to speak and said, but I was promised electronics. He said, you want electronics? I said, yes, drill instructor. So he tossed me a flashlight and said, you could be the road guard tonight without <laughs> electronics training. <laughs> and that was basically it. <laughs> I came out of boot camp off the Camp Lejeune and uh, the infantry training that they give you up there. But I was able to finagle a set of orders while I was up there uh, to go on to Quantico, Virginia mm -hmm. and uh, take training as an ammo tech. And uh, that wasn't really a segue to EOD, but it did get me on some working parties uh, in Vietnam where I got to work with uh, some of the EOD folks. Mm-hmm, okay. Uh, well, you can, um, if you would like to elaborate on that, that would be wonderful. And and tell us how you transitioned from um, an ammo tech to to EOD. Well, uh, I did end up in in, in uh, Vietnam, mm -hmm. uh, and I was assigned to Fluzy Bravo uh, up in I Corps, and. Uh, uh, at Quang Tree, Vietnam, uh, I was assigned a working party for EOD at Don Ha to unload ammunition for disposal by open detonation. The ammunition had been collected from both the storage area at Quang Tree and from the remains of the ammo dump that had once existed at Don Ha but had blown up. And of course, uh, my job as well as the rest of the working party was to just be a mule, move the the uh, he the heavy items from the back of the truck down to the blowhole, and the EOD techs would uh, place the items in the hole with the explosives to blow it up. And uh, so we worked most of the day. The EOD technicians uh, set the time fuse. I knew this was going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred ton shot. So I knew it would be a good show. We evacuated back to the EOD huts about a mile away to uh, wait on the time fuse to do its work. After arriving back at the uh, EOD huts, uh, much to my surprise and, and glee, the EOD techs offered me a cold beer. And of course, that, that was a treat. So I took a few sips and I asked, I said, would it be all right if I climbed up on top of the roof so I could get some good pictures of the fireball? They chuckled a little bit. I said, sure, go on up there. So I climbed up there with my little Kodak camera and uh, a cold beer and was standing there waiting. And of course, as the uh, shot was cooking, the EOD techs would give you a countdown, you know, like 10 minutes, five minutes, three minutes. And it was an estimate based on the time fuse. But they got down to a minute, and then they got uh, uh, 50 seconds, 40 seconds, and 30 seconds. I was up looking through the camera lens, waiting for the shot to go. 
and the shot went a few seconds early. Uh, and a beautiful fireball. I started snapping pictures just one after another, hoping that I would catch it. And, and I did. I got some pretty good pictures. But about that time, the concussion from the blast caught up and literally rolled me backwards and down off the roof. And I bounced off the roof and fell right between the EOD technicians. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they looked up and said, would you like another beer there? <laughs> I'd say that was a pretty good introduction to the EOD career field right there. Well, it was. And that, you know, a bunch of months went by. I was now in Vietnam up at Vandergriff Combat Base. And I was uh, again got assigned to a working party. But this time, uh, the EOD officer. Uh, that that came up there to uh, be in charge of the shot. He looked a lot like Broderick Crawford. You know, he was, I don't want to say he was overweight, but he was a little bit round, had a big black mustache, and he had uh, uh, a a growl from having been raised in in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they called him Lieutenant Muzzle Blast Wild Bill (laughs) Sullivan. That's what the guys told me. I I didn't call him that, and but I did hear him claim to be the oldest second second lieutenant in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. and uh, so so once again we were unloading uh, am, ammunition from trucks, placing it uh, next to the blowhole, and the EOD techs were pulling it in place. But uh, this time, unlike the first shot I'd been out on. Lieutenant Sullivan wanted to fancy up this shot, so he took several cases of smoke grenades and pop-ups and just put them on top of the shot around the outer ring of where the shot hole was. And I can remember uh, being back up on the base looking out at, at the shot hole, which was a little less than a mile away. And I knew it was going to be an impressive shot because there was a lot of stuff that went in that hole. Uh, when, when it blew up, though, it was very impressive. It had smokes and streamers coming out the side of all different colors, and it was uh, an impressive blast. And uh, it's still fresh in my memory. I've since learned it may not have been the proper disposal of of prior techniques, but it was pretty. So, <laughs> so, so with that, you know, I uh, uh, flew back to camp with June. My tour was up, and uh, I was assigned uh, to Kilo Company Third Battalion, Eighth Marines, at Camp with June. And uh, uh, we were preparing to go on a med cruise. I was a platoon sergeant, as a sergeant E five. And on a Wednesday afternoon, I was calling Cadence from my platoon, and I took him through the industrial area at Camp Lejeune. As we were running through the industrial area, I noticed there were a bunch of Marines playing volleyball, uh, cooking steaks, and drinking beer while we were out running. I actually ran around that block twice. That was the old building 1308, which is where EOD used to be at Capitol. It's got a new building now. But, uh, 
I remember thinking to myself, I need to go back, <laughs> knock on the door and see what it is you have to do to get into EOD. And uh, I didn't get the chance because when I got back to the company area, I was handed a set of orders for Marine Barracks, Norfolk. And a few days later, I was on the way. But EOD had reserved a spot in my brain. So I went on up to Marine Barracks, Norfolk, checked in. And I was in an atmosphere up there where there was good mentors. You got a sense of accomplishment that rewarded hard work. And I realized... You know, maybe the Marine Corps is my calling in life and not the tracks of NASCAR. And so uh, I, I re-enlisted for four more years. And I started going to college at night because, you know, if I was going to stay in the service, I needed to take advantage of the many opportunities that were provided. So uh, in my second year there, I was encouraged to apply for the Marine Associate Degree Completion Program which was nicknamed MADCOP. Mm -hmm. The uh, Navy had the same program. They called it ADCOP. And uh, uh, the purpose of that program uh, in 1970 was to uh, take enlisted folks and train them to be better first sergeants and sergeant majors. So uh, from that aspect, the program didn't work because almost everyone that went to college, got a two-year degree, ended up becoming a warrant officer, me included. So uh, I was selected for the MADCOP program in May of 1970, no, 71. And uh, I, But I was number 22 on a list of 20. And when I asked what that meant, I was told it means your second alternate. And, uh, you know, if for some reason two people can't attend this fall, you'll move up into the top tier that can attend. And it also means that if you apply next year, you're more than likely be in that top tier. So uh, the summer went by. And uh, in August, I got called and told to report to the CO's office. The commanding officer of... Uh, Marine Barracks was Colonel B.W. Alford, and he was uh, uh, a highly decorated World War II and Korean War veteran, uh, and he had actually served with Chesty Pearl at uh, Chosan, but he was an old-time, old-time type of leader, uh, but also in his office when I came in to report was Colonel Kirby, the XO. Captain John J. Clancy III, who I'll never forget, and First Lieutenant Thomas Barrows, who was an LDO, and my boss, along with the barracks sergeant major. Uh, I had no idea why they were there, but I remember the thought going through my head that they wouldn't all be there if this was a court-martial. <laughs> <laughs> and the colonel, Alfred, asked me, he said, uh, he said, well, young man, are you ready to go off to college in Pensacola? And, of course, my answer was yes. Uh, this was on a Wednesday. He said, good, you have the Monday to be there. Start checking out of my command and don't screw up in college. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, Ben, let me ask you, why do you say that you will never forget Captain John Clancy III? 
Well, he was uh, uh, a recon officer, uh, had served in Vietnam, had been highly decorated. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how it came about, but there was a new special on him a few years later uh, where apparently he had been loaned to the CIA and uh, was involved in uh, moving the GC-145 gun system, which is a 155-millimeter howitzer, to South America. And uh, I don't know all the details, but I remember thinking and seeing this news thing about him. I said, Dad, I used to work for that man. Hmm. I knew he was strong. He could go up the rope climb uh, without using any legs, just with arm strength to the top, tap the bell and hang there. So, and then come back down and, ne- and never use his legs. Hmm. Uh, so, and he's a good leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can remember one time I got in a little bit of trouble uh, coming back from the club at one night. Two guys jumped me, and uh, uh, we had a fisticuff out on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. I got back to the barracks in reasonably good shape, and the next morning I get called to come into his office, and then sitting in his officer are two petty officers and their Navy lieutenant, and the lieutenant was there to complain that uh, uh, his two sailors had, had been beat up by me, and I, I looked at Captain Clancy, and I said, sir, they jumped me. And, uh, and, and yes, I did defend myself. And yes, that's why they had black eyes and split lips. <laughs> See? And then I can remember Captain Clancy looking at the, uh, Navy Lieutenant saying, well, that's all I need to know. Lieutenant, get out of my office. <laughs> and that was the end of that. So, uh, now, you know, if you're kind of wondering where all this has to do with me getting into EOD, that, uh, you know. I would suggest a little patience because here I am at Marine Barracks. So how did I get from there to the EOD program? Well, of course, I'm off to college. Uh, uh, I'd been married for about, oh, 10 months, and I bought a mobile home with my reenlistment bonus. Mm-hmm. And I called her up uh, as soon as they told me I was going to college. said, meet me at the AC Ducey Club for lunch that I have some exciting news for you. She said, good, I have some exciting news for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we met at the club and went inside and sat down to have a nice lunch. And uh, she, she said, uh, uh, yep, we are moving, but I'm not going to Florida. I'm going to Boston, Massachusetts. So I've got a friend that I'm going to go up there and stay with. So I'm leaving you. What? Yeah. And so here I am on a Wednesday noon. I've got two days to check out and, uh, and then get to Pensacola, check in on Monday morning and start college that day. So, so I was off. And uh, one of the advantages of the Mad Cop program is that successful completion of it provides you an opportunity to choose any future duty assignment you want. Okay. So as I went through uh, college there, I finished up in the fall of uh, 
1973, and uh, I called my monitor up and I said, uh, I want to go to embassy duty and go to Paris, France. And he said, hey, no problem. Said, we can get you on that. He says, I'll, I'll uh, get a set of orders cut for you. You'll be stationed at San Diego to until next August when you actually get to start embassy school. I said, well, wait, 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 wait. What will I do for a year? He says, well, you've been a platoon sergeant. He says, you're a grunt, meaning 0311. Mm -hmm. And uh, it'll probably put you in charge of the casual platoon, supervising working parties uh, of people who are being thrown out of boot camp and uh, or have been caught with drugs or be thrown out of the Marine Corps. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I thought for a second, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> and so I asked him, I said, would you have anything else that would might be available? And he, uh, he said, well, I've got this thing. I don't really know much about it. It's called EOD school. It's an Indian head. And if you're interested, I can get you in that right away. Well, of course I had flashbacks to, uh, Vietnam and working with EOD and I thought, yeah, that seems like something I would like to do. So uh, I said, send me to EOD school. So he cut me a set of orders. Uh, I checked in, but in the orders had me going straight to Indian head in, in 1973. Uh, you, uh, you first went uh, to uh, Alabama and you went through what today called phase one chemical mm -hmm. training. Mm -hmm. Then you went to Indian Head. Well, I skipped that, went straight to Indian Head mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, checked in up there. And nobody noticed on my orders. They just put me in a ground class. And I, I, I went through the school, uh, graduated. And it wouldn't be to 16 years later that somebody would be looking through my record book at headquarters Marine Corps and decide I had never finished EOD school <gasps> and because I hadn't been to phase one. Oh, my gosh. And, and I was already an LDO captain, a master EOD technician, and I was the only officer on active duty in the Marine Corps at that time that had actually worked a live chemical project, which I did uh, – uh, 1974 on Okinawa, we moved a hundred tons of agents to uh, Johnston Island for disposal. So, so that was how I ended up getting to Indian Head into the EOD program. I did go to Phase One. At first, I wasn't going to go, but then uh, I got to thinking, well, it can't be too hard at school. <laughs> I've been at EOD 16 years, and so. Uh, it sounded like it could be a lot of fun, and mm -hmm. it was. Uh, I was the honor graduate of the class, and I don't remember ever studying at all. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it came pretty easy to you, huh? <laughs> it, they had some wonderful clubs there where you could go get a adult beverage in the afternoon. Uh-huh. Well... That is a very interesting story, Ben, and one that I've never heard um, of of it being 16 years into your military service or as an EOD technician and not, you know, completing phase one or being said, well, you're, you're really not an EOD technician. That's very, very different uh, story. <laughs> 
And I'm glad I'm glad it ended the way it did, that's for sure. Do you have any moments during your time in service that stand out for you and that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, you know, uh, my entire career in the military, even pre-EOD and, and during the, the uh, EOD program, uh, I really enjoyed. But, uh, you know, if we, if we start at the beginning, like boot camp, as shocking and as physically challenging as it was, uh, I discovered that I liked the challenge and my attitude of rebellion mostly dissipated into I like a challenge to overcome. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so that was an impressive period of, of training for me. Certainly Vietnam, uh, uh, being sent over there, I was prepared for it. But as I would learn, the emotional preparation comes with the it's with experience. My first day in Vietnam was probably not a lot different than many folks had. We landed on a charter flight from Okinawa, Japan, into Da Nang. And as I stepped off the airplane, I remember being hit by a temperature over a hundred degrees and high humidity, the, uh, coupled with the smell of burning feces. And uh, as we got into formation to march into a hangar where we would get our in-country assignments, I remember I was soaked with sweat within a few minutes. Inside, we were called by name and given instructions on the next step, which for me, it was an assignment to Quang Tree, and we'd be on an aircraft leaving for Dong Ha in about two hours. And then we would be met by vehicles for transportation to Quang Tree. So the aircraft left Da Nang going to Dong Ha. It was a C-123 cargo plane with no windows in the back, which meant that we all got soaked uh, when the aircraft flew through a cloud. And I can can remember distinctly as I sit in the web seats back against the bulkhead and seat belt on loosely, uh, I probably should have taken notice of those on the plane that were pulling their seat belts extra tight as we got ready to make our approach to land. Uh, <laughs> and, and then as the crew chief announced we were uh, now preparing to, to uh, land, I missed another opportunity. But I didn't understand what was about to happen. It was my first time for an aircraft combat approach into a landing area and uh, where there could be live fire. The result is that uh, the aircraft went into a steep nose, nose dive downward toward the runway, and I assumed that we were about to crash. I thought we'd been hit or something. But as we got near the runway at probably four or 500 feet, the aircraft flared out and it quickly touched down. And as the aircraft taxied down the runway, uh, the crew chief was uh, pushing the pilot of sea bags out the back. And as the plane got to the end of the strip to turn around, he was yelling for all of us to get out, get out, get out. And so we did. We're standing there at the end of the runway at Dong Ha. Our sea bags were maybe 100, 200 feet 
up the runway from where we are. And uh, there's a gunnery sergeant yelling at us to run up and get our sea bags and, uh, and follow him up to uh, a building or a tent. A tent. And so we go up there and uh, uh, they look at our orders. And uh, I was assigned a five-ton truck to make the ride down to uh, Quang Tree where I'd be assigned uh, to duty at Fluzy Bravo. That's the Force Logistics Supply Group Bravo. And I still didn't have any uh, firearms or deuce gear. And I'd been in country all day, both in Denang and up there. And at Quang Tree, we're sitting in the back of the truck, and uh, the uh, staff NCO that got out of the front of the truck told us just to sit tight. He'll be back in a minute. And... Uh, and uh, he'll know where we're each going to go, and he'll drop us off around the compound. So as we were sitting there, I should have noticed that uh, all the old-timers stood up and, and uh, started jumping off the truck, yelling, incoming. I really wasn't sure what that meant, but I jumped off the back of the truck, and I can remember standing next to an individual, and uh, the first rocket impacted it blew up it wasn't too far away from us but the individual beside me was hit with shrapnel and it literally just just about cut him in half mm. he never made a sound uh and i had this vision in my head of what death would look like in vietnam and, and uh, i thought you know like the cowboy movies of of the 60s and 50s that uh in the war movies that you got shot and you had a few seconds to, uh, you know, to beg for forgiveness from the Lord or, or, or to say your last words. And in this case, he never made a sound. Mm -hmm. And so that was really uh, educational mm -hmm. for, for me. It was a moment I've never forgotten. So, Right. Uh, hmm. Yeah, so, uh, and then, of course, my first EOD assignment was May 36, uh, and this was in uh, 1974 as part of the 1st Marine Air Wing, uh, had been, and, and the unit was located at Naha Air Base, Okinawa, uh, and there they were responsible for uh, supporting the Commander of Fleet Activities Okinawa, or CFAO. They had a composite squadron there. They had a rotating P-3 squadron, as well as a, was a rotating Marine Corps squadron of aircraft. So before I arrived there, there had been a Navy EOD team uh, assigned that had some difficulties with the base management and were sent back to Group 1 in Hawaii. Uh, the Commander of Fleet Activities was unable to procure another EOD team from Group 1. And uh, so he turned to the Deputy Commanding General First Small at Iwakuni and asked for a Marine EOD team to support ordnance flying aircraft at Naha, which included Marine aircraft. Uh, Mike 36, which had been pulled out of Vietnam, was reactivated and sent to Naha. So that's where my first set of orders was too. They were already there. Uh, the EOD team had inherited the Navy EOD Quonson huts that served as their office and storage along with most of their equipment. 
the third Quonset hut that was attached uh, had been cut from the other two, and it contained what had been their sweeping quarters and a very nice bar. I did get to go inside and look around, but it wasn't <laughs> our <laughs> And it gave me insight as to why they might not be there anymore. <laughs> so, uh, but it was a really good place to uh, to start your EOD assignment. Uh, it, as it turned out, it was actually a really good place to learn. Uh, a few days after I arrived, the uh, current EOD officer there departed to go back to the States for retirement, and a new EOD officer reported in, and it was Captain Bill Sullivan, who I did not call muzzle blast. But, he, <laughs> but I remember having met him in uh, Vietnam, and so only a few days later, uh, an IG inspector showed up. In this case, it was Captain K.B. Davis, an old friend of Captain Sullivan, and eventually became an old friend of mine. But uh, he inspected our team, and uh, we got a pass, pass with major discrepancies. And uh, I didn't understand it at that moment, but it was a gift uh, in more ways than I understood. It was a gift to the team, so we didn't have to be re-inspected. But it was also made in private with Captain Sullivan on the condition he would square that team away. So uh, we had a post-IG party and, uh, and uh, spent the weekend trying to get sober and, and uh, getting ready to go back to work on Monday morning. And uh, on Monday when Captain Sullivan came in, I quickly discovered why his nickname Muzzle Blast <laughs> because... He was not happy with the performance of the team, and he immediately initiated 12 to 14-hour work days until we bought all the records and equipment up to his standards. And for me, as a brand-new EOD tech, this was really a good learning experience because I got to learn things they don't teach you at EOD school, like how the supply system works, how to order missing parts, inventory and accountability of the tool sets, classified publications, a whole host of things. At the EOD school, we were using 60 series publications. At the EOD units, they were in the process of converting their publications, or had been in the process for the past year or two. This unit had uh, 1308 series publications, and they were all supposed to have been remarked with a 60 series uh, code form. And we had about four feet of page changes in several drawers around the office wow. that we all got to work on to put it together. But had I gone to a squared away EOD unit, the opportunity to learn all these different things would not have been available. So mm -hmm. the knowledge I got from this experience uh, would benefit me throughout the rest of my EOD career. Mm -hmm. yeah. Another thing that, that happened at May 36 was the Japanese uh, self-defense force was in the process of standing up their own EOD capability in preparation for the turnover of Okinawa to the Japanese government, which was scheduled for the next year. At EOD school, I had met the first Japanese EOD officer to come to Indian Head. His name was First Lieutenant Kushi Ikamoto. And uh, we were both basic students. He was in the uh, 
what I guess is the NATO course. And after his graduation from Indian Head, he went back to Japan and was subsequently assigned to uh, the 1st Combined Brigade at Naha because they would be the ones that would stand up uh, what was equivalent to an EOD platoon to take over the responsibility from the Marines and the Army EOD that, that were on Okinawa. Mm. So, uh, since the only thing separating MAG-36 EOD from uh, the Japanese EOD shop was a 10-foot cyclone fence, you could literally see each other on each side of the fence. Uh, they requested uh, that MAG-36 provide them with an American to help Ikimoto train the uh, 30 or 40 uh, people he had that had volunteered to become EOD techs. Uh, I, I really thought that someone more experienced than a basic student should go do that. However, I was soon overruled by <laughs> all the ones in the EOD unit who said, no, no, <laughs> the best thing to do would be to send you because you still got the student mindset. You haven't learned the bad habits yet. You don't know the shortcuts. And you can go over there and teach them like they should be taught. So that was uh, a learning experience again mm -hmm. and a good opportunity. And it uh, it cemented uh, a friendship with uh, Ikimoto that uh, exists to this day. And uh, uh, it wasn't the first time that we would be co-located together. Hmm. So you're still in touch with him today? Yes, uh, he's a, a grandfather. I have more grandchildren than he does. So, oh. uh -huh. so there is jealousy there. <laughs> <laughs> That's really neat. So, and then, of course, pro probably the next uh, bi big event in my EOD career was I was stationed at Camp Lejeune. I was in the second EOD platoon. I was a gunnery sergeant. But not the NCIC or that unit because that belonged to the master gunnery sergeant. But uh, the base EOD team had a gunnery sergeant as its NCIC. And we learned that uh, the first woman in the Marine EOD program was graduating from school and would be assigned to Marine Corps Base Camp Majun. Mm. Uh, there were actually two women that went through together at the same time. Uh, Beth Salamanca, who became my boss, and Marsha Barton, uh, who went to Cherry Point. Uh, both had notable service in the Marine EOD program, and the performance, I think, opened the door for many other women to follow. Uh, and uh, one of my good friends and the very first woman in the EOD program for all services was uh, EOD Chief Master Sergeant Linda Cox, and uh, she she's was a long time in the Air Force, and she's been a long time senior UXO supervisor for CH2M Hill. And I hired her uh, shortly after she retired when I was working for CH2M Hill. Mm -hmm. And as L Linda Cranford, which was her name when she went through school in 1974, I, th I think she demonstrated that dedicated women could be successful in the EOD. I remember when she showed up at the EOD school, there was 
lots of talk about she would never make it through. She was a little dainty girl and she wasn't strong enough. And uh, she really had a hard battle to fight because the instructors, most of them, not all of them, but most of them weren't wanting to enhance her career and uh, start putting women in the EOD. She did a great job. Lieutenant Salamanca was uh, uh, a great boss, co-worker. Uh, we, we both learned a lot. Uh, the result was that uh, my two years there, uh, I ended up getting selected for warrant officer and uh, sent to six months of basic training uh, for officers at uh, Quantico, Virginia. Lieutenant Salamanca went on to make major and serve a tour as the Marine Corps EOD officer assigned to the State Department, and afterwards transferred into the Marine Corps Reserve and took a job at a three-letter agency. Uh, and she's still still out there doing EOD-related work today, I think. So, well, they led the they led the way for sure for women in EOD. Yeah, they did, and. Uh, I feel fortunate to have been uh, one of the ones that accepted them. And uh, all the ones I met, I thought they all did a really superb job mm -hmm. and that they deserved to be there. So mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. Um, so you want some more moments that stood out? Because I've got a few more in my EOD career. <laughs> sure. What yeah. – um is there any one that stands out to you more than the other, Ben? Or you you just go right on and and tell your story? <laughs> well, actually, they all stand out. Uh -huh. in my, they were all building blocks. And, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, well, I think it's great. So yeah. the next um, the next one was your EOD. You were at EOD school as a division head. So that was in. 80 to 83 in Indian Head. Oh, that's correct. But, you know, <laughs> it it was not the overseas assignment I was hoping for. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, but as it turned out, uh, my Indian Head tour of 36 months, I spent uh, almost 19 months deployed somewhere. So it wasn't all that bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I was predestined, as I learned, to go to the IED division. Uh, I had wanted the ground ordnance division because I felt that was my strong point. But some of, some of the civilian agencies that attend training within the IED division, uh, upon learning that I'd been promoted to warrant officer, uh, asked the CEO of the school, um, if I could have that billet out there that they'd like to work with me. So I ended up at Indian Head as a brand new officer, predestined for the IED division, and with a Marine Master Sergeant as my NCOIC. And I thought, well, if my first assignment as an officer is Indian Head, at least I'd get a Marine NCOIC. And I expected it to be a really good relationship. <laughs> That was an expectation because as hard as it was, I had to relieve him of his duties after a couple of months. Mm. And he was transferred out of Indian Head and retired a short time later. So my next MCOIC was Master Chief John Phil. 
I didn't know what to expect, but can happily report that John Seal is one of the best EOD technicians and leaders I've ever worked with. He did everything and more than an officer would expect from a senior enlisted. And uh, up to and including coming in my office, closing the door behind, <laughs> behind him and us having some uh, in-depth discussions. Mm-hmm. But uh, today we are Facebook friends and uh, uh, his place in my heart is cemented forever. So uh, mm. it, it was good education. Yeah. And uh, also at Indian Head, you know, I, I got selected to go on a pre-operational IED course at uh, school, Ar- Army School of Ammunition in Cunnington, the United Kingdom. And I went there from January to April of 81. Uh, this school is the British version of the Improvised Explosive Devices Division. But at that time, <laughs> the, the, the British were having IED war in Northern Ireland. And uh, the EOD unit there in Belfast was uh, handling multiple IED calls every day. And they were taking casualties. So uh, the training was advanced compared to what we were being taught at Indian Head. But it gave me an opportunity to bring a lot of information back that would uh, eventually be incorporated into the U.S. program. The British were using robotics and bomb suits. The U.S. wasn't. Mm. Uh, My my, my time there... uh, (laughs) was I opening that a warrant officer in the British Army is like a senior enlisted. Okay. All right. It's uh, it's not a commission officer rank, but it's like a master chief or a sergeant major. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I showed up, uh, the commanding officer, uh, after an explanation, because uh, he he thought they were going to send an officer over. I said, I, I am an officer, mm-hmm. sir. I said, you know, <laughs> I'm a commissioned officer. And uh, uh, But there was some confusion as to where I should be billeted and what clubs I should have access to. But uh, uh, the commanding officer there decided I would be billeted in the officer's quarters and have access to any club on base. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> That gave me an opportunity to uh, socialize with all ranks. And uh, Lord only knows how much damage the British were able to do to my liver. (laughs) (laughs) I I was treated like royalty, and I was able to make arrangements while uh, I came back for most of the staff at their school to come visit the U.S. Mm -hmm. school and spend a week with us. And, And the British were able to take advantage of that. They have a weekly flight into Andrews that uh, brings supplies to the embassy in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and the school staff were able to fly free. All we had to do was put them up at Indian Head, yeah. uh, provide them some transportation, and uh, each member of uh, my staff of the IED division uh, were individual sponsors for each one of them. They uh, they had a lot of fun, I think. They learned a lot. Uh, we had almost a party a day to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> there were a number of ladies that became enchanted with some of these people that, had, that were visiting. 
And of course, their favorite bar was the Sportsman, and that's when it was in its heyday. So, okay. So the Sportsman was that located on the base, or was that out of the gates of Indian Head? Uh, that was down at the bottom of the hill. Okay. Uh, come down from the gate on the left there. Uh, so it it. Uh, uh, it, it was kind of like Paulette's at Virginia Beach, but uh, it was the Indian Head version. Of gotcha. Really, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which I have frequented many times, too. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, the next thing while I was there was that, uh, of course, we had the tragic Air Force Flight yeah. 93 crash taken off from National Airport. Mm -hmm. I was attending the annual bomb squad uh, conference at the FBI Academy. And uh, when I learned of the crash, uh, my master chief, John Thiel, uh, told me he wanted to go work on the diving barge and that it was en route from Indian Head. Uh, <laughs> he he had pinch hit for me while I was in Great Britain, so uh, I certainly couldn't say no, no. Uh, but he went up there and helped form the salvage ops. And I tell you, for those Navy divers and the volunteers who worked up there, they literally had to break the ice to get into the water. Mm -hmm. And they ultimately recovered over 70 bodies from the crash site. And mm -hmm. the bodies uh, were in ghastly condition. And I now, anyone associated with that operation will ever forget it. Mm -hmm. The yeah. the were properly recognized for uh, a tremendous effort in going up there and providing assistance. So. Right. Yeah, I remember. I remember when that crash happened, and I also have some Navy EOD guys that um, actually were on that job. So, um, yeah, I would say it was probably or it is probably one of the things that they remember the most about their, about their career. Yeah. Uh, no question about it. The other thing that happened while with Indian Head, <laughs> in keeping with uh, wanting overseas assignment, was uh, in 1982, uh, uh, of course, the Israelis crossed into Lebanon and... Uh, mm -hmm. It went all the way up to Beirut. It was on the news a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I was at a weekly Monday morning call, a uh, commander's call. Uh, Captain Blanton was the uh, CO, and uh, he had the podium giving the introduction. This was a meeting of all the division heads. And... Uh, Wanda, who was his secretary, came in and said, excuse me, Commander, but you have a call, and you need to take it. And, of course, he, uh, he, his reply was classic. Uh, tell, tell him I'll call him back later, to which one replied, you should take this call. It's the CNO. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he immediately left the room, and uh, we all sat around wondering what was going on. <laughs> And uh, he returned about 30 minutes later uh, to the podium and announced that he needed an EOD mobile training team ready to leave immediately, and it should include members from each service. And he started asking the senior representatives in the room 
permit service if they were willing to go or who they would nominate. And of course, my hand had been up since he said we need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, he asked uh, a Marine that was senior to me, who was the first lieutenant, if he could go. And his reply was he'd have to check with his wife. Mm-hmm. And I spoke without being called and said, Skipper, I don't have to check with my wife. I joined the Marine Corps to go to hot spots. And he replied, okay, you are the Marine Corps representative. I immediately, after the meeting, I uh, went straight to the Marine Corps liaison office and informed Lieutenant Colonel Seaman, who was my reporting senior, uh, that, that I had volunteered. He congratulated me before uh, and asked me to make sure my division was taken care of before leaving. I called uh, Master Chief Seal and told him I'd be gone and he'd have the helm for a while. The uh, initial the initial deployment to to Lebanon left a few days later on commercial aircraft and consisted of five EOD technicians with uh, John Boyden in charge of the Joint Service EOD team. And we flew by commercial air across the Atlantic. We had purchased a row of seats in the very back of the plane because we were carrying some special publications. And when someone asked where we were going, what we were doing, Commander Boyden, who was reading the latest Time magazine, answered, we were Ferris wheel mechanics, and those were our tools. And it just so happened that on the cover of Time showed the Ferris wheel in Beirut. And, oh. <laughs> well, he meant the joke. Uh, that kind of stuck, and so it, it, from then on, anytime somebody asked us what we were doing there, we said we were first wheel mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> but we got hospital fire pay the whole time we were there, and uh, we ended up setting up a disassembly and inerting team that uh, uh, took apart over four four hundred items, mm. and many of them. That, uh, were first seen items. We wrote 13 publications for Indian Head to distribute worldwide. And we uh, shipped back over 100 tons of captured ammunition for technical evaluation, disassembly, and unearthing for training aids. And that amount of munitions led to additional projects for Marines at Camp Lejeune and Quantico to make training aids and mm-hmm. for some of the folks that were on this trip to assist with the technical intel work at Indian Head. So, uh, while, while we were there, uh, the uh, 24th uh, Marine Amphibious Unit arrived at the end of October to relieve the 32nd mile, which had been there. And I should point out, we weren't stationed on the beach with the Marines. We were living downtown working in civilian clothes mm. in different hotels and apartment uh, buildings there. But the 24th mile was commanded by Colonel Thomas Stokes, uh, who I'd worked for when I was a gunnery sergeant, and he was instrumental in my promotion to warrant officer. Uh, and so I went down to welcome him to Beirut and told him that... Uh, when I fish, no, he told me, excuse me, he told me that when I finished my Indian head tour, I was coming back to Camp Lejeune as his EOD officer. Mm-hmm. And I tried to explain to him that uh, 
uh, that's a captain's billet, and I'm a warrant officer, and I'd miss the deadline to submit for LDO because I was deployed. And his reply was simply, make sure you're not late and come prepared to work. So uh, a few days later, the colonel assigned to the Beirut embassy came to where I was in Beirut and said he had a message from headquarters Marine Corps wanting to know if I desired to apply for the LDO program and informed me I could only say yes. So <laughs> I said yes. <laughs> After arriving back to Indian Head in, de in December, my name was on the January LDO list without me ever submitting an application. And uh, my, my boss, Colonel Seaman, was furious at me at the time, believing I'd circumvented the chain of command mm -hmm. by not going to him. I had not. Uh, but a few days after that, I was promoted to first lieutenant. I received orders to Camp Jim. So wow. Colonel Stokes was right. Mm -hmm. Please join us next week for part two of the interview with U.S. Marine Corps retired Captain Ben Redman. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.